0: Well, it is kind of hard to believe that we come now to the final service of our meeting. I hope it's been edifying for you. I've enjoyed it immensely, and even though perhaps it's been tiring for all of us, I hope that something's been said or we've studied something together that would encourage you or at least give you some knowledge to go forth and maybe apply it in some way to your life. You know, we began a little series on church history, and uh, I'm going to have to really uh, not only talk fast tonight to uh, get through the material, but also to keep us awake. Because after that meal, uh, you know, I have something. I have something I need to say to this congregation. You've got a problem, and that is, it's uh, you're too hospitable. In fact, I think death by hospitality might be a good uh, a good book to write about this congregation. And because I've been fed, uh, man, I've been fed so much by everyone in homes and restaurants, and I got to go home and and fast a while and pray and. And maybe become one of these ascetics that we've talked about, because uh, wow, even though I've been walking every morning, it's just not cut it. So, uh, but thank you so much. But anyway, tonight we have a lot to cover, and uh, I promise I won't talk quite as long, hopefully, Lord willing, as last night or the night before. But uh, we've been discussing church history, and uh, even though it's a little bit punny, I, I mentioned this the other day. But you know, when we look at the church, who's in the middle of the church? Well, you are. You're in the middle of the church. But really, in reality, when we look at history, it's his story, isn't it? It's, it's the story about God and about how his, how his providence makes things work. And of course, as we've noted over the last couple of nights, uh, you know the church was established, but then very quickly began to apostatize, began to fall away. And so really, the whole history of the church, and I'm going to use that term again tonight in an accommodative sense, because obviously the Lord's church retains Uh, you know, the the identity that it found in the New Testament. But the church began to fall away from the very beginning, really, and uh, still continues to this day to maintain those scriptural principles that we read about in the New Testament. And, of course, the plea of the churches of Christ has always been to go back to the Bible, to speak where the Bible speaks, to be silent where the Bible is silent, to do Bible things in Bible ways, to call Bible things by Bible names. And, of course, that should indeed be our motto. Now, as we've looked over the last few nights, we have looked basically at these facts. And after I go through these four or five points very briefly, you might say, well, why couldn't you have just said that the last couple of nights and we could have been done with it? Well, the church was established in A.D. 30 to 33. The apostles were living at that period of time. And, of course, the church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Very quickly after the church was established and congregations were established, people began to depart from the faith. The Apostle Paul warned over and over, for example, in Acts 20, to the Ephesian elders that there would be men who would arise even amongst their own ranks and would be as wolves among the flock. And, of course, the Apostle Paul warned Timothy that there would be a man of sin and that there would be an apostasy from the truth. Well, that, tr- that happened, and then, of course, along that same period of time, there was persecution. First of all, by the Jewish nation, who obviously did not like being, uh, you know, the Christians. And then as the church began to spread into the entire known world of the day, the Roman government began to uh, persecute the Christians as well. And we noted various emperors, Diocletian, Decius, and others who tried to wipe out Christianity. Well, in about 300, a man by the name of Constantine comes to power. Emperor Constantine, and he espouses Christianity, at least as a religion that could be useful to his political uh, aspirations. And so he makes Christianity legal. And we might think that's a good thing, but the Edict of Milan, which he gave in 313, which made Christianity legal, also was a very bad thing. Because from that point on, what we see is that the church, and again, I use that term broadly, the church began to be united with politics. And so the church and the state married one another, and from that unholy union came all kinds of false doctrines. Last night we talked a little bit about some of the doctrines that have been introduced into Christendom that cannot be found in the Scripture, such as infant baptism, such as a special priesthood, such as, uh, uh, such as rather uh, the clergy laity system, and such as transubstantiation. And other major doctrines that were introduced that the Christians of the first century knew nothing about. And of course, with time, as the politics and the Christianity of that day began to be more and more co-mingled, you have more and more corruption entering into religion, to Christendom, uh, during the next several centuries. Of course, we talked about Charlemagne just for a moment last night, and the Holy Roman Empire, and how that it was Pope Leo III who uh, crowned Charlemagne, but it was with the caveat that the Pope really would control the Roman Empire, and so it became known as the Holy Roman Empire. Well, over the next several centuries, from about 300 to about 1700 AD, those 1400 years, sometimes called even the Dark Ages, There was an intervening, uh, you know, problem and darkness that crept into religion, and it was purely and wholly corrupt. Well, in 1517, Martin Luther and others began to rise up in what we call the Reformation period. Now, that word just simply comes from the term reform. They were trying to reform religion of that day. They were trying to reform the Catholic Church. They were not trying to restore New Testament Christianity. That movement would come a bit later, but they were trying to reform uh, the Christianity of that day, which was, again, Catholicism. That's the period that I want to speak very briefly about tonight, and I want to notice some of the main points uh, that lead up to and include the Reformation. Now, the Reformation was a very pivotal point, even for us, important for us even today, because it was during the Reformation period and thereafter that even the New Testament began to be translated into common tongues, such as German, English, and so on and so forth. It was during that period of time, broadly speaking, that men like William Tyndale would translate for the first time the Bible into English, or at least the New Testament. And then Coverdale would come along and finish the job, as well as others throughout the centuries who eventually lead us up to the King James Version. So there's a lot of formative events during this period of time. And it's also a period of time when the world is changing. For example, in about 1455, we know that Gutenberg popularized, he really didn't invent movable type, but he popularized the movable type printing press, and the first Bible that was printed, the first thing that was printed was a Bible, and it was Latin. And so with the ability to print literature, and the ability to get the word out more quickly, there came about really a renaissance, a change, a a world-changing atmosphere, in which people were no longer as ignorant, and I use that in a classical sense, as they once were. Well, by the 15th century, we have such corruption in the Catholic Church that there began to be, again, some people who spoke out. Now, one of those individuals, as I mentioned, was Martin Luther, and one of the things that precipitated Martin Luther's anger at the Catholic Church uh, was the fact that there was a man by the name of John Tetzel. Now, John Tetzel was quite a salesman, and John Tetzel realized that the church coffers needed money, and so John Tetzel began to circulate around Europe, And he began to sell what was known as indulgences. Now, indulgences are really, I think, kind of hard to explain. And many think that it's really the payment for sin not yet committed. And that's kind of right. But in reality, indulgences were the payment of physical money so that the results of sin in purgatory could be diminished. And so you could prepay or pay for others uh, for their sins so that the time in purgatory that hot place, if you will, where you supposedly went to sort of pay for your sins before later on you were absolved of those sins, your time there could be reduced. Well, of course, Martin Luther had a fit about that. Martin Luther felt like that was an uh, an abuse of the church's power. And by the way, Tetzel's earnings, which apparently were substantial, went into the building and the making of of, uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Now, the St. Peter's Basilica today in Rome is the second basilica. The first one, I believe, burned uh, way back in the early days of of, uh, this period of time. But nonetheless, it went into the great coffers of the Catholic Church. And Texel is credited with having a little bit of a phrase that he would go around. Now, remember, by the way, people at this time were superstitious. The church, the Catholic Church holds all power. And let me throw this in because I'm throwing in things from previous studies. Uh, remember, the first I said that the first uh, draft I did was seven parts. But nonetheless, you know, let's think about this. You're a, you're a poor individual in the English countryside. You look over there, or maybe in your Italian countryside, you look over there and here's this institution that has these great cathedrals, that has gold and silver and paintings that are priceless on their walls. You're going to be awed by that. And so also the church was teaching that you needed to do what they said to do in order to be saved. And they held great sway over the people. And so if a priest comes along or some emissary from the Roman Pope, and he says, here's what you must do, people are going to try to do that in that particular era of time. Well, Texel came along selling these indulgences, and he had this phrase where he says, as soon as the coin... In the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Now you know tradition's kind of interesting because it's really hard to say whether he really said that, but it catches the drift. He was selling these uh, these these certificates, if you will, whereby your time in purgatory or in punishment could be reduced. Well, you know, at this period of time too, people being superstitious would venerate relics. The Catholic Church would go about and get various items, skulls of supposed saints, pieces of wood supposedly coming from the cross, and they would put them in the cathedrals of that day and people would venerate or worship those particular items because it was held that those items had spiritual significance and even religious power. And so then the sacramental idea that if you worshipped or you venerated or you did so many things, you could earn your salvation and these things could help you. So relics were sacred items, venerated, and every church, of course, wanted either a saint or a sacred item attached to it. And so there were pieces of the true cross. There were bones of the apostles on display. Now again, not surely the real apostles or the real cross because there's no indication that we know where they are. But nonetheless, these things were displayed as if they were. In fact, John Calvin, a very interesting reformer as well, said that there were 15 skulls of John the Baptist, and he says there was enough wood from the crosses of Jesus to build a cross so tall that you couldn't see the top. Now, he's also been reported to have said uh, there was so much wood from the crosses of Jesus, little splinters, that you could build Noah's Ark. Now, whatever the point is, you know, tradition sometimes gives you a lot of stories but the point is, is that you have all of these artifacts out there, which may or may not mean anything, but people are venerating them and worshiping them as if they are real because they believe it gives them some spiritual connection to God. Now, I'm going to throw this in as just an aside, but under St. Peter's Basilica in Rome today is an area called the Necropolis. Now, Necropolis, the word simply means the city of the dead, Necropolis. Necropolis. And the necropolis is where supposedly St. Peter is buried. Now, a few years ago, Clint de France, wouldn't you know it would be Clint de France. Clint is is everywhere. Clint is everywhere you want to be. Clint de France and I were in Rome, and we were able to get a tour under St. Peter's Basilica to the necropolis. Now, I have friends that are Catholic. They're sincere, wonderful people. And I would never besmirch their religion, or I would never besmirch their sincerity. But as we stood among the faithful, as we journey through the catacomb-like aisles of under St. Peter's Basilica, the bones and the priests and the popes that have been buried. And then we came to the niche whereby Peter, if you look back through, supposedly was buried. It became very quiet. There was an aweness, uh, you know, that began to sort of circulate through the crowd. And Clint and I just stood there and thought, you know, really? Is this really what Christianity is all about? But this was a holy place, and there was supposedly, uh, I think, some holiness that people thought they might gather. You see, things haven't changed that much. Superstitions haven't changed that much, even from this period in the 15th century. Well, the society, though, was changing. People were becoming more educated. The power of the church was beginning to fail a little bit. And by church, I mean Catholicism, because it was the dominant religion of the day because they made for sure no one else had a presence. And two things happened that brought about really a, a great change and brought about the Reformation. One, as I mentioned a moment ago, was the printing press by Gutenberg. Gutenberg printed the Bible for the first time in about 1455. There are some Gutenberg Bibles around today in various museums. If you have 30 or 40 million dollars, you might be able to pick one up. Nonetheless, they're very rare. And it is, again, a, uh, a watershed for the change, really the flood, that would begin to occur in printing. Martin Luther, who we'll notice in a moment, was a prolific printer. And he printed more literature in Germany than any other person in Germany. Religious tracts, sermons, and so on and so forth. But about this time, there was another change in religion that brought about a great amount of, of uh, a fervor. And that was a man by the name of Erasmus. Now, Erasmus, he, as it were, went and he got the Greek manuscripts that were available at the time. There were only a couple of handful. And he put together a new Greek text. It's called the Textus Receptus, the TR. And it is from the Textus Receptus that then you start having the English Bibles printed. But now that was a change because up until this point, they had used the Latin Vulgate. The Latin had grown corrupt. It had changed over the years. People no longer read or spoke Latin. The priests spoke it, but some of them didn't even know what they were saying. They were just rattling off that which they had memorized. And so Rasmus and others felt like there needs to be a new base text on which to base the Bible, the translation. And then, of course, others like William Tyndale, uh, Coverdale, uh, Matthews, and others thought that it needed to be in the language of the people. So as these things begin to happen, they all kind of come together at about the same time. You have a change in culture, you have a change in society, you have corruption in the church, the Catholic church, and you have men like Martin Luther who are finally willing to stand up and say, enough already. Now, Martin Luther was a Augustinian monk. He did not want to throw away the Catholic church. His, his, His purpose was not to create Lutheranism. Now that's what happened. But his purpose was not to create a new religion. His purpose was to reform that which he saw as being corrupt. And so he began to teach and preach, and he began to question the various doctrines of the Bible. He entered a monastery at a very young age. His father wanted him to be a lawyer, by the way. But uh, he decided to become a preacher, and I'm sure that was disappointing for his father. But nonetheless, he began to dedicate himself intensely to prayer and to Fasting and he was really almost a radical when it came to his lifestyle. He was also a colorful individual because it said that you could hear him at times jousting, as it were, verbally, with the devil, using all kinds of expletives and all kinds of terrible language. But nonetheless, he was a priest. He was an individual who wanted to reform the Catholic Church. Well, Rome sent him on a mission. Uh, he went to Rome. He went to this place called, uh, well, I don't remember the name of the church, but nonetheless, he comes to Rome and he sees Christians, so-called, at a place called the Scala Sanctum. Now, a few weeks ago when I was there with Ronnie Wade, I visited this for the umpteenth time, uh, and uh, what this is is supposedly these are the steps that were brought from Palestine by Constantine's mother, Helena, supposedly the very steps in front of Pilate's hall that Jesus stood upon when Jesus was being tried and convicted. Now, of course, we don't know about that, but nonetheless, these steps were hauled from Palestine to Rome, and people, even to this very day, will pay penance upon these steps. They will get down on their knees, and they will walk up one by one. In fact, you cannot walk up these steps except on your knees. In fact, Ronnie Wade and Wayne Fowl tried to come down them on their feet, and uh, the guards got them right away. But nonetheless, you can go up these steps on your knees, praying all the way, and again, demonstrate your penance and get spiritual merit from doing this. Well, Martin Luther saw this going on. These are the same steps that were there in 1400. And Martin Luther finally said, this is crazy. The just should live by faith. Now let me say this real quick, and I don't have time to get into the doctrinal side of this, but you know, sometimes such reformers or even religious leaders such as Martin Luther and John Calvin and so on and so forth, we give them sort of a bad rap. Now, I don't believe their theology. Don't get me wrong. But, considering their environment, Martin Luther, yes, he did focus way too much on faith alone. In fact, he changed the biblical definition of faith and the purpose of faith and how faith works to faith alone. But, Consider the environment he was in. He was in an environment where the Catholic Church of the day said you had to work such as this, you had to bleed on your knees, so to speak, so that you could be safe. So he reacts, but he reacts too far. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind. When there are trends and winds of change, sometimes we need to be careful that we don't overreact to the change that is going on round about us. Well, over time, Luther comes up with a list of grievances. They're called the 95 Theses. Now, by this time, Luther is a priest up in a town called Wittenberg, Germany, and he takes this paper of 95 complaints and he nails it to the door of the Catholic Church in that city. Now, he wasn't vandalizing. That was where people pinned things to make public announcements. And, of course, the Pope got word of this Others got word of this, and he was criticized. He was called before a court called the Diet of Worms, and it left a bad taste in his mouth. Of course, a Diet of Worms would, wouldn't it? Diet of Worms is pretty nasty. A diet just means court. It doesn't mean something you eat. But nonetheless, in April 1521, Luther was brought before the Diet of Worms, and Luther was tried as a heretic for what he was preaching. And they asked him to recant. They said, just deny what you've printed. Deny what you're saying. And that's where, if you read the story of Luther, it gets really kind of uh, hair-raising because he says, Unless I be convinced by the testimonies of Scripture or by clear reason, I neither can nor will make any retraction, since it is neither safe nor honorable to act against conscience. And then there's that famous phrase where he says, Here I stand. I can do no other. Help me, God. In other words, even though he might have been mistaken in some of his theology, He was not going to give it up. He was going to go to the death if that was what it was necessary, even be in prison, which he was, if indeed he had to, uh, in, in his willingness rather, to stand for his faith. Well, the movement begins to spread. And there are many others across Europe. Martin Luther, of course, in Germany. Zwingli, up there, Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland. All of these men had different nuances of teaching, but they all recognized that the church of that day was corrupt. John Knox down in Scotland, John Calvin in France, from which we get the calvinistic doctrines today, and we'll notice him just in just a few moments. But the goal again of all of these men was not to establish or return to the New Testament church. That was not on the horizon. That was not in their mind. Their goal was to reform the Catholic church. Now the problem with that is sometimes you can't reform something Sometimes you have to tear it down and start over. But there were differences even among the reformers on theology. For example, Martin Luther believed that silence allows. Now, we still have that controversy going on in our brotherhood today. It's amazing that after 1,500 years or so, or no, not 15, I guess you should say 500 years, we haven't solved it. But nonetheless, um, Luther thought that if the Bible didn't specifically forbid something, then it was allowed. Now, on the other hand, Zwingli said, no, silence forbids. If the Bible doesn't specifically authorize something, then it is forbidden. Now, there's a big difference between those two because, you see, Luther would say, well, you can add what you want as long as it doesn't violate some positive command of Scripture. Zwingli so would say, no, you can't add it unless it's authorized. We still fight over that at preacher studies today. You see, these issues do affect us and our theology even today. John Calvin, though, in my view, made the most Uh, dire inroads into christendom because of his theology now the other evening i noted with you that john calvin was a student of saint augustine augustine was one of the early church fathers so called in about 400 a.d augustine had become a christian having been converted by a man by the name of ambrose and he had come out of a false dualistic gnostic doctrine called manichaeism the flesh was evil the spirit was good But the flesh was evil. And so then John Calvin, as he then begins to study uh, Augustine, he begins to incorporate, I don't know, knowingly or unknowingly, these ideas into his own theology. And so he comes up with this idea of God's sovereignty, which God is sovereign, but to the point that he believed that God had control of everything, even against free will. And so he came up with what's called the TULIP doctrine. Now, this is not pejority. This is not making fun. They will acknowledge that they believe in TULIP. In fact, have you ever heard of the point, the, the idea of a five-point Calvinist? You have five-point Calvinists. Some will say, no, I'm a three-point Calvinist. Uh, well, the five points are TULIP, total depravity, total heredity depravity. In other words, we are born in sin. We can't even believe unless God does a special miraculous work in our life. Number two, unconditional election. Because we're born in sin, when we then come to God, we're unconditionally elected. In other words, God chooses who's going to be saved, who's going to be lost. We are predetermined. And those that are predetermined to be saved then have had Christ die for them and them alone. That's called limited atonement. Now, we believe that Jesus died for the whole world. We believe that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Calvin said no. Christ only died for the elect. The rest are damned to hell no matter what they want to do. And so there's a limited atonement. Now, if you're part of the uh, limited atonement group and you're part of the saved, then since God saved you and decreed that, there's nothing you can do to be lost. And of course, in order to be saved, God's going to give his grace to you. That grace is not going to be able to be resisted. That's irresistible grace. And when God does that, then you're going to persevere forever. You're going to be saved, once saved Always saved. And so this doctrine of tulip becomes really the basis for most of the Reformed and the churches that came from the Reformation that are around us today. In fact, one of the things of the two doctrines that separate, I believe, the churches of Christ from other groups, one is the idea of the Calvinism, and the other is premillennialism. Those two doctrines, again, are not espoused by the churches of Christ. But almost everyone in the denominational world today will believe in once saved, always saved, or some form of Calvinism and pre-millennialism. Well, that's another subject for another time. But, you know, again, from the uh, Reformation, it didn't solve anything. It just began to splinter. And, you know, some things, as I mentioned, you just can't fix. You can't make a silk purse out of a, a ear. You just can't do it. You've got to start over. And so then, these men missed the point. They were trying to take something that was inherently corrupt, that had a structure of leadership, as we noted last evening, that was inherently sinful and wrong, and were trying to reform it. That will not work. Well, go by then a few hundred more years. We get now to the 1800s, 1700s, 1800s, and we begin to see then people in the denominations. Now, by this time, many denominations had split. You have the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Methodists. You have all these denominations, Lutherans, that had begun to split and splinter. And there began to arise a few men, a few good men, who said, you know what? The Reformation didn't work. So what we need to do is we need to restore Christianity. Now, I use the term restoration with a bit of a caveat. And that is this. I don't believe personally that the church ever disappeared i don't believe that the church had to be totally restored in the sense that it you know was never around i believe that somewhere probably in those groups that catholics called heretics during the middle ages there were faithful christians meeting now i can't prove that but that's my own belief i base that upon even today finding congregations once in a while that we know nothing of that are virtually the same as we are they've taken the bible they've gone back to it And you know what? When you plant seed, you get the same crop. If you plant corn, you're going to get corn. They had planted the Word of God, and they got New Testament Christians. So I believe that probably everywhere around the world, there were, or at least some places around the world, there were legitimate Christians. But nonetheless, men began to say, we need to get back to the Bible. We need to restore New Testament Christianity. By this time, of course, there was a dearth of biblical knowledge there was a, a confusion in the religious world. There were, again, and as even today we go on, we see world religions circulating around. You know, used to we said we needed to go to the world. Now they've come to us. And of course, it does provide quite an opportunity. I like the quote from uh, C.S., uh, not C.S. Lewis, but uh, S. Uh, Carol, Lewis Carroll, Lewis Carroll, that's it, when uh, he speaks of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland. She says, I knew who I was this morning, but I've changed a few times since then. You know, that sort of uh, is reflective of the religious world. You know, denominational, by the way, denominationalism, by the way, is really dead. You know, today, Methodists and Baptists, they'll circulate within each other's pulpits. Uh, You know, you can hire one man over here that's gone to this theological seminary. He may not even have the same nomenclature or moniker as you do religiously, but that doesn't matter because he is the local preacher. So denominationalism, in many ways, is dead. And today, in many ways, we're in just as much confusion as there ever was. But back to the very uh, idea here of going back to the beginning. New Testament Christianity sowed the seed of the Word. Jesus himself spoke of sowing the seed of the Word. And so there were men who began to arise saying, you know, if we get certified seed and we throw out the weeds, man-made doctrines, theologies, creeds, and we simply go back to the Bible then we're more liable to get New Testament Christians. And that makes logical sense, doesn't it? We want to plant pure seed, and we want to plant that in every generation. And when we do, then we're going to get Christians, pure New Testament Christians, in every generation. Well, you know, the restoration movement, restoring, actually began in Europe with men like Campbell and others. But along the eastern seaboard of the United States, in very much the same time period, various men began to arise. Men like Abner Jones, Elias Smith. Now, these were denominational men. But they also realized that their denominations were not biblical. And so they began to teach, let's go back to the Bible. And even though the movement was formative at this period of time, it was in its infancy these men began to blaze a trail for others who would follow and preach, let's go back to the Bible. Now here's where I'm going to truncate a tremendous amount of material, and basically just say that as time rolled on, a man, first of all, by the name of Alexander Campbell, came to this world with his father, Thomas Campbell, and they began to, came to this world, came to the new world, I should say, they came from uh, Scotland and Ireland, they came and they began to preach back to the Bible. In fact, uh, there's a very interesting book. I would recommend it. It's written in story form. It's by a man, I believe, by the name Cochrane, Cochran, the Fool of God. And it's a delightful account of Thomas and Alexander Campbell's coming to uh, America and their plea for Christian restoration. So delightful account. I'd recommend it. But there was another man by the name of Barton Stone. Barton Stone is known as a uh, frontier preacher. He was preaching much of the same doctrines that uh, Campbell was. They met. They began to compare notes. Their movements joined. And, of course, from that, of course, we get then the movement that later would become the Christian churches, disciples of Christ, churches of Christ, and so on and so forth. Now, that's another history. Uh, You can read West's book, Search for the Ancient Order, if you like his series. There are many books that are out there that are very good if you're interested in simply reading about the Restoration Movement. Or you can go back and read the original documents, such as Alexander Campbell's Millennial Harbinger. You know Alexander Campbell was quite the man. Uh, Bethany, West Virginia, was where he lived. He had his own printing press. Uh, he would get up in the morning early enough and stand. If you actually, if you go there, have you been there, Frank? If you go there, there's a, a kind of a, a, a outdoor study that he still exists that he would stand in. He would get there early in the morning and he would write standing up. They always wrote standing. And he would write enough that morning to keep his printers busy all day long. Now, if I get anything written, even an email in the morning, I'm doing pretty well. But Alexander Campbell would get up early, I mean really early, by the light of a coal lamp and write enough that morning to keep his printers busy all day long. He was also the postmaster of Bethany, West Virginia, and of course that gave him the ability to send things out post-haste. Nonetheless, these two movements merged and they merged basically on four timely principles. In other words, the Restoration Movement came down to basically these four things. Number one, Christ reigns. Christ is the head of the church. Not Martin Luther, not John Calvin, not uh, King Henry VIII, not all those guys back in the Reformation, but Christ. That was the one of the non-negotiables. Number two, the Bible rules. It is God's word. There is a pattern that is recognized, and that's very important because, you know, today we have left in our postmodern world patternism. I don't mean in the church necessarily, although it has affected us, but I mean in the religious world. Most folks in the religious world today don't, don't believe there's a pattern. They don't believe it really matters, what you do in worship. But the Reformation, Restoration period was based upon pattern, that pattern being the New Testament, and the rejection of creeds. Now, as with anything... Again, not only in the Reformation period where things began to split and began to splinter, even today in the post-Restoration period, things are still beginning to splinter. Or not even beginning, they are splintering. Think about just in the Churches of Christ that you know how many different groups. There are no exception, Churches of Christ there are cups churches of christ there are cups no classes churches of christ there are classes no cups churches of christ there are churches of christ that believe in pre premillennialism there are churches of christ that believe in institutions it goes on and on and on and on and on you see what's the solution the bible going back to the bible and unfortunately even today there are divisions paul said that shouldn't be as he wrote to corinth he said, There are divisions among you. I hear that from the house of Chloe. And he said, I somewhat believe it. He said, Some say I'm of Paul, but I'm of Paulus. Others say, I'm of Christ. He said, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Well, certainly not. And so, Paul, even in the first century, gave the initial plea that Campbell and Stone and others, and even today, we give, and it has let us go back to the Bible. Well, that leads us into our final point, and that is, what should we do in the 21st century? Now, we may have to adapt our approach but we never adapt the doctrine doctrines are pure but we may have to adapt our approach you know there are people coming into this country who don't know jesus you can't teach them about the hair folks until they know jesus you can't teach them about one cup until they know what the church is now that doesn't mean we have to wait forever to teach them those things but we may have to adapt our approach but what we've got to do is go back and teach the same things doctrinally speaking that jesus is the son of god Much like Paul did in Athens. You know, on Mars Hill, that's an interesting study because Paul takes those folks where they were, pagans, worshiping an unknown God, and he says, Him I declare to you. We take where people are and we begin to nurture and bring them along to hopefully where God is. And of course, how do we do that? Exactly like they did in the first century. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' Doc. Well, that's the study tonight, and there is, again, uh, no doubt, tons and tons of material that uh, we could have included, and, uh, but I wanted to go ahead and give you a kind of a finalization of the end of the story, if you will, the rest of the story, because the Reformation started by Martin Luther didn't work. And today, arguably, the Catholic Church is as corrupt as it ever was. And, unfortunately, the various denominations that split off from Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, others, didn't work either. And so, the only thing we can do is continue day by day, year by year, generation by generation, to plead to go back to the Bible. Now, we have to be careful that we don't allow even our view of the Church of Christ to become secular or denomination, denomination. Because if we ever quit questioning, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but if we ne- if we ever quit determining that we need to go back to the Bible, then surely traditions of men will creep in and we'll begin to hold those things as high as we do doctrine, and pretty soon we're no different than the pre-Reformation church. And so we have a great job ahead of us tonight, but I think we can do it. I think, again, that God has the same power today that he had then. You know, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He said for their ends the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith for as it is written the just shall live by faith. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info@ at